So this morning's passage is Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. We've been making our way through the book of Colossians. We find ourselves now finally moving from chapter 3 into chapter 4, but it's going to pick up really quickly. We only have two more sermons uh, in Colossians before the series is over. You might look at that and say, well, there's all this stuff. It's a lot of um, details and instructions, uh, and so we're going to kind of address that together. Then we're going to have a two-part series, and then we will get into the Psalms for the summer. So we'll be in the Psalms during the summer and, uh, and then we'll move into our next series in the fall. That's covering a lot of ground quickly. Well, as we've made our way through the book of Colossians, we have been reminded over and over again that a Christian is someone who has, by God's power, been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into God's kingdom. For the Christian, this is a heart-stirring, life-changing gospel reality. We're no longer enslaved to sin, under the wicked rule of Satan, but we have become servants of God under the perfect rule of Jesus Christ, and we willingly want to serve him, our king. This change in citizenship has taken place not because we fought for and won our independence, because Jesus, our triumphant king, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh to live a righteous life on our behalf, then died a sinner's death on the cross to make atonement for our sins, and was then bodily raised from the dead so that all who repent and trust in him would be brought into his kingdom forever by grace through faith, granted eternal life, and promised a resurrection just like his. This is our gospel reality. We are citizens of another kingdom. We've gotten into this this kingdom not by our works, but by Christ our king's work. And in Colossians 3, Paul has been teaching us how this great and enormous glorious truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and King is to shape our lives, both corporately as a church and individually as Christians. And so he started out very general, talking about the the things that are of heaven, not on earth, where to pursue them, how we treat one another matters, very big picture, fruits of the spirit type of language, calling us to be tenderhearted towards one another, to worship God together, to seek peace with one another. And he's moved from the general to the very specific, culminating with these instructions at the end of chapter 3 on how the lordship of Jesus Christ is to be demonstrated by Christians within three specific relationships. If you remember, a few weeks ago in Colossians 3.18 and 19, Paul gives us instructions on how the rule of Christ is to be evident in the relationship between a husband and a wife. Then last week we looked at this passage, Colossians 3.20 and 21, Paul gives instructions to children and parents with special attention to fathers. Now, in this third and final passage, Paul gives instructions to bondservants and masters. Now, of the three relationships at the end of Colossians 3 and into Colossians 4, this one is the most difficult for us to directly apply to our own lives because thankfully, in America and in most of the world, there is no longer a one-to-one parallel. However, I do believe that the basic biblical instructions that Paul gives in this passage can be applied by Christians within the context of two very common and current relationships that continue to exist today. So with all of that, if you haven't already, please turn to Colossians 3. Let's get into the text, starting in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now let's pray for his help in these things. O great God, who we worship in spirit and in truth, all because you have graciously, mightily worked in our hearts to show us our need for Jesus, to grant us faith and repentance, we come together to worship you, holy triune God of the Bible. We ask, Father, that that you would hear our prayers today as we we corporately seek after you. We want to worship you and enjoy you. We want to grow as disciples. We want to be the men and women that you call us to be. We want to conform to the image of your son, our savior. And we need your help because apart from your spirit at work in our hearts, we will close areas of our lives off from this passage. We will seek to undermine it in our hearts. We will not apply it rightfully. As you call your people to obey your word, help us this day to see in our own lives, as your word goes forth, how this passage can be rightly applied to the various relationships that you have put us in and brought us into as your people. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in this church who are struggling, who are suffering, who may have gotten bad news or have been dealing with, the, with a, a certain health ailment. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen their body, but more importantly, you would strengthen their soul, that you would increase faith where it is lacking, that you would remind us that no matter what comes, and, and you do not promise an easy life for the Christian, no matter what comes, whatever hardships, whatever sufferings, whatever temptations come, that you are still good, that you're still loving and merciful, that you will supply your people with what we need so that you are shown to be glorious in the world and that we are to remember that your promises do not change with our circumstances. We thank you, Father, for our brothers and sisters who are walking by faith through various trials and hardships. We pray that you would sustain and strengthen them with this passage. We rejoice with our brothers and sisters who are rejoicing. Again, we are so thankful for this time with the Creech family. We pray that you would bless their time here with us and with other churches that have partnered to do this great work that you've called them to do, to take the gospel to the tribes in Senegal. We pray that we would be a refreshment to them, that we would, we would serve them well, that we would be generous and giving, that we would show them hospitality, that uh, you would, even through our interactions with them, remind us that the gospel is at work throughout the world, that we would be burdened for the loss, not only in our families, in our community, in our country, but in the world and that we would continue to grow in our passion to proclaim the gospel and plant churches throughout the world, that you would use this fairly small church in relative to, to other churches in, in our city and state to do great things for your purposes. And Father, with all of this in mind, all of these prayer requests, we, we make them in faith, trusting that you will supply us with what we need this morning We pray these things for your glory and your people's joy. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're an employee, you might work 40 plus hours every week under the authority of a manager, a supervisor, a foreman, or the owner of the company that you are employed by. 
If you are a student, depending on your age and grade, you might spend somewhere between 15 to 35 hours of every week under the authority of a teacher, teachers, or professors. There are 168 hours in a week. If we account for eight hours of sleep, and I know that not all of us sleep for eight hours, but some of us sleep for more than eight hours, so just kind of, just, just go with this. Eight hours of sleep a night, then we're left with 112 hours. So if you work for 40 hours a week or are in school for 35 hours a week, approximately one-third or more of your waking hours are spent under the authority of someone else. That's a sobering thought. If you're an employee or teacher or a student, you're under the authority of somebody else for, for a significant amount of every single week. And because of the authority that they have over you, these same people can make your life easier or harder. They can assist or hinder your career or your education, and they can cause you to look forward to every single day at work or every single day of school, or they can cause you to dread going to work or going to school. On the other side of things, if you are a Christian and a manager, a supervisor, a foreman, the owner of a company, a teacher, or a professor, God has put you in a position of authority over people for one-third or more of their waking hours. You have a lot of influence if you are in one of these positions over people and how their life, at least in the big picture, is going. Because of this, you have the ability to make a profound effect on people's lives. And as someone who recognizes that Jesus is king, this means that ultimately, uh, if you are a manager, a supervisor, a foreman, the owner of a company, a teacher, or a professor, God made you a manager, a supervisor, a foreman, a business owner, a teacher, or a professor, so that you would use the authority that he has given you to glorify God and to be a blessing to others. Remember, any time that God gives his people positions of authority, uh, opportunity to, to lead, it's not ultimately for that person's benefit, but for the benefit of others and for his glory. And so for this reason, because of the nature of these relationships, the, the structure of these relationships, this dynamic of one in authority and one under authority, I believe that though it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, the instructions that Paul gives in this passage to bondservants and masters are best applied by the church today within the context of the employee-employer and to a lesser degree, the student-teacher relationship. As Christians who proclaim that Jesus Christ is king, every single relationship provides us with opportunities to serve Christ and to be a blessing to others. This is true whether we are an employee working for a boss, a student learning from a teacher, a manager, the owner of a company, or an elementary teacher. Seeing how we spend so much of our lives in school or at work, we Christians need to think deeply and seriously about how we can glorify God in these relationships. It's important. You're spending a majority, well, not maybe a majority, but a significant amount of your waking hours within the context of these relationships. Whether we are the one under the authority of another or the one with authority over another, we exist to proclaim that Jesus Christ is king and we are to glorify him in every single relationship because all of life exists for Christ. We've hit this over and over again in Colossians, Colossians 1, 14 through 16. He made everything. Everything exists because of him and for him. It's sustained by him and it is there for him. And so this includes our relationships. They exist to make much of Jesus, to serve as vessels and opportunities, as platforms for us, no matter what position we're in, to make much of Jesus. The ESV translates the word doulos as bondservants. Other translations 
translate the same word as servant or slave. The instructions in verses 22 through 25 then are given to people who are serving a family or a farmer or a business owner, not as an employee, but as a bond servant, as a slave. Now, this is why there is no one-to-one correlation for us 21st century American Christians. Thankfully, and we are to praise God for this, in America and throughout most of the world today, slavery, at least as an institution, is illegal. Though sadly, still today, and we hear about these stories, we even had one not too long ago in a situation in New Berlin where, where somebody had enslaved another person to work as, as, as a servant in their home. They were not paying, paying their wages, and it was this, this, this pretty big story that, that unfolded in New Berlin. So this stuff still happens. People are still enslaved, not just out there, but here in America, even in our own community, but it's no longer legal. Still, some of us uh, may be a bit confused why the Apostle Paul, under the guidance and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would give instructions in Colossians to bondservants or slaves and masters instead of simply outright condemning the entire practice of slavery. Here's an opportunity to say, this is evil, It's, it's, it's not acceptable, we need to get rid of this practice, but he didn't. And so for this reason, because of our own country's sad history with slavery, and in light of the current national discussions that have been taking place in the world and in the church, before we move on to consider how Paul's instructions apply to to the church today, I, I think it's important to say a few things about slavery, especially slavery in the Bible. And the form of slavery that was most often practiced in the first century, in the form that Paul was addressing in this passage, was different from the, the form of slavery that was used in America, which most of us, you think slavery, and you, you instantly think of the, the wicked, evil things that were practiced in this country during the colonization of, of America. The first century slavery in the Roman Empire was, was often, uh, has often been, been called indentured servitude. The form of slavery used throughout the centuries in America has been called chattel slavery. This especially wicked and evil form of slavery treated Africans and other people groups who were made in the image of God as if they were property to be used like livestock, sold and abused, and then when no longer considered profitable, discarded as if they were garbage. It's disgusting. It's evil. In his book, Slave of Christ, scholar Murray Harris explains some of the differences between these two different forms of slavery, and there have been different forms of slavery practiced throughout human history. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. Commenting on the differences between these two forms of slavery practiced in the Roman Empire in the first century and the form of slavery that was once legally practiced in America, Benjamin Riach writes in his book, Women, Slaves, and the Gender Debate, these differences mitigate the offensiveness of ancient slavery. However, slavery in any form is an offense to human personhood When one human being owns another human, it is inherently degrading. Still, it is important to distinguish the slavery of New Testament times from the slavery that ravaged our own country not so many years ago. I give this aside on slavery because at times you may have a a discussion with somebody who who points to one of these passages and and these mentions of slavery and and not, here's another 
reality. The Bible refers to the Christian as a slave of Christ. And so thinking about these, these terms and as we dialogue with non-Christians or those Christians who are confused by this, it's going to be helpful to, to explain the differences between these two different forms of slavery. Friends, the Bible does not commend or encourage the practice of slavery, but it does not directly condemn it either. The sad reality is that, and this has been proven over and over again throughout human history, in a fallen world in which we humans have rebelled against God, broken his perfect law, and sought to be our own rulers rather than submit to the lordship of Christ, we humans have and we will continue to mistreat and abuse one another. And slavery in all of its forms is more evidence of this biblical reality. We are a depraved people. Apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, total depravity is a reality. And you can see it throughout human history. We enslave people and we treat them as property. We abuse them. We break up families. And and I'm talking about human history has, has shown countless examples of this. What does this say? We are a depraved people. Not only does it teach us this biblical reality, it also teaches us another important one. We need a savior. If we are left to our own devices, if we are left on our own, if God says, all right, you guys figure this out. You be the kings and queens. You, you figure this out. Here's what we'll do. We'll enslave one another. And so we desperately need a savior. And the, the, the gross and nasty history of slavery practice, not just in this country, but throughout the world, reminds us of this reality. It's also important to note that it has been the truth taught throughout the Bible truths like the Imago Day that all humans are made in God's image. And it's been the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. These truths have been used throughout history to dismantle and destroy the practice of slavery. And it's often been faithful, committed, Bible-believing Christians of all different skin tones who risk their own lives to confront and abolish the evil practice of slavery. We Christians need to confront these matters. We need to talk about them. Where we see racism continuing in this country, we need to fight against that. We need to be opposed to it. It does not honor the Lord, and it undermines our witness as Christians. With all of this in mind, I want now to look closer at Paul's instructions to bond servants in verse 22. Bond servants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So here Paul instructs bondservants, slaves, to obey in everything. Now remember, he's speaking to people who are in a very vulnerable position because there was someone else who was over them, who had a lot of power over them, who had the title of master. They were to call them master. Paul doesn't say, bond servants obey most of the time when you think your master is being just and fair. He says, obey in everything. And this is why what Paul instructs to the Christian bond servant in this passage can be so helpful for the Christian employee or student. As an employee or student, you are going to be told to do things by those in authority over you that you may not like. I remember professors in college, just, it seemed like they were just assigning assignments so that we would jump through hoops and do a bunch of work and not enjoy, enjoy life. I remember those. Now, it happened less and less in seminary, partly because I loved what I was studying. I didn't love so much studying business in, and, and, um, and, and other things in, in my undergrad degree. But, but I remember bosses assigning me with tasks. I'm like, are you serious? And, and, and if, if, if you're seriously considering your own history in work or in education, it's likely that you could share a personal story about a boss or a teacher that treated you unfairly 
or had it out for you. At least you thought they had it out for you. And so we think about these things and we see this, this command to bond servants to obey and everything. And, and there's a tension here. Wait a second. You don't know my boss. You don't know how difficult they can be. You don't, know, you don't understand how rude and, and maybe they're, they're not a Christian and they're opposed to you just because you're a Christian and they know that you, you seek to honor the Lord. Now, it's true that in God's providence, we are not like the first century bondservant who is stuck under the authority of an unfair or unjust master. Instead, we are employees and students. Therefore, if we choose to, we can switch jobs. We can transfer departments or schools. We can switch professors or drop a class. And thus, unlike the Christian bondservant living in the first century Roman Empire, we 21st century American Christians can relatively quickly change our situation. We can get out from underneath the authority of a bad boss or a bad teacher, and we can put ourselves under the authority of a better boss or a better teacher. At least we, we hope they'll be better. Now, in some situations, this may be the very best thing and the right thing to do. Certainly, if an employer or a manager or a teacher or a professor is abusing their power, they're breaking the law or causing us harm, or if we're a parent, they're causing our adolescent child harm, whether that be emotional, spiritual, or physical, well, we should get ourselves or we should get our, ch- our child out from under that person's authority. And if the situation calls for it, we should contact the proper authorities, whether that be the police or an administrator. But at the same time, we need to be careful that we are not so quick to make a change when things are difficult, but not harmful, that we miss out on powerful opportunities that God is giving us to show our allegiance to Christ. What is the greatest problem in humanity? The unregenerate rebellious heart. If you're a Christian and you serve under the authority of a boss or an employee or a teacher who is not a Christian, what does that person desperately need from you? They need you to share the gospel with them. They need to have a real life example of what it looks like for somebody to submit to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're an employer, you're a boss, you're a manager, you're a teacher, and you have somebody underneath your authority that is not a Christian, who maybe is undermining you, who is opposing your authority, even though it's God-given, you have that because of the position that God has put you in, what does that rebellious person desperately need from you? They need to hear about Jesus. They need to see an example of a real-life Christian who follows Jesus even when they're being opposed, even when it's hard. And so I would caution you, Christian employee or student, who has the ability to switch, who is not in danger, and yet because of the difficult circumstance you're in, tempted to think, I need to get out. I need to switch jobs real quick. And again, there's, there's wisdom there. Maybe that's the best thing to do, but be careful. Pray, consider, is this an opportunity for me to share the gospel with somebody who is headed towards hell? And maybe it's not even the, the, the boss that you have or the teacher. It's the other people that you work with, your, your classmates. And if you were to leave that position, you would be leaving those relationships as well. And this is how we need to be thinking. We're so tempted as American Christians to make decisions based on building our own earthly kingdoms. That's what we're prone to do. What can make my bank account number go up? What can get me into retirement quicker? What can, what can make my life easier? And that is not the call of the Christian. So yes, you may switch jobs. That might be the best thing to do after prayer and counsel and discussion with, with other Christians, with your spouse, if you're married, with family members, considering the situation. But, but you really need to take this into consideration. Maybe God is calling you to that position and wants you to remain in that position so that you can glorify him in that position. And the hardship that you are enduring is actually a gift from God to make Jesus Christ glorious in that place. 
You need to think like this, Christian. But we're tempted to not do that. One place where we can take direction from is in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 24, where Peter writes, and, and he, he's writing here to Christians, and I don't mean to demean or make you feel bad. He's writing to Christians who are not sitting in comfy chairs in a very safe country, a relatively um, you know, comfortable setting in the sanctuary. I know some people like it colder in here, some people like it warmer in here, but, but he's writing to people who are facing death because they said, Jesus is Lord, and I am going to submit to his rule and reign no matter what. So, so you, Christian, who is by God's grace, this is not something that, that we, you know, we, we should be at all upset by or, or set aside. He has given us comfort and privileges, and they're to be used for his glory. You, Christian, in that position, me included, need to remember that this is to people going through great hardship, risking their own lives and jail and the destruction of their own families because they follow Jesus. So here's what Peter writes to them. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, again, I'm not saying that the proper application of this passage is that we have to remain under the authority of employers, employers or teachers that have that have been or are seeking to harm us physically, you know, or, or endanger us. No, in such a situation today, we can and we should protect ourselves and, and remove ourselves from that situation. What I'm saying is that when, a, when we Christians endure hardship, especially when that hardship comes to us because another person is in a position of authority over us, we are to follow the example of our Lord and King Jesus Christ. Our King suffered for us by going to the cross. He endured injustice. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He did not threaten and say, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to smite you. You will be, you will be particles floating in space when I'm done with you. That was not his response. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And that is his and our Father in heaven. We have the same Father in heaven, the Lord God. There's a tension in the Christian life, and we, we struggle with it, especially because of our background, our culture, and it's this. Weakness is strength with the gospel. And so we're tempted to grab hold of power to do things the way the world does them, to say, I'm going to sue you, I'm going to attack you, you want to you go, let's go. And then we read the Bible, and we see the example of our Savior, and he's strong, and he's tough, and he doesn't back down, but the way that he, he exudes this toughness is through his weakness, by, by going to the cross, by suffering, and the whole time trusting his Father in heaven. And so, Christian, think about this. The very way that you might, in your life, 
Most of us will, 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 will not great some, make some great worldly impact. You know, we, we think, well, oh, I want to make this great impact throughout the world. I want to be a missionary. I want to be, I want to raise, you know, 12 godly children and they all become pastors and deacons and mission, whatever it is, you know, whatever your, 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 your dream, your spiritual, beautiful dream, most of, most of them will, will probably not come true. And yet, God has put you in certain relationships that are very hard. And in those relationships, you are given a platform. You're given an opportunity to glorify God in a strong, beautiful, amazing way to make much of Christ. And how will that happen? Through your weakness, through your obeying God and the authority that he has put over you. Again, if, if it's dangerous, if, if you're under great harm, then I would say it, it, get out but if, if you endure because of the, 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 the sufferings of being under the authority of a mean or difficult boss or teacher, brother, sister in Christ, here it is. You get to scream the glories of Jesus Christ. You get to demonstrate the power of the gospel in that relationship. See, the Christian employee and the Christian student today has the same mission as the Christian servant that Peter was writing to in this passage we're to follow the example of our king who bore our sins on the cross. Sometimes the way that we will do this is by, by living by faith in Christ, even as we endure hardship from those who are in authority over us, whether that be a boss or a teacher. Oftentimes it, it won't even require that we endure hardship from them, but that we are simply hardworking, obedient employees or students who submit to our boss or teacher's instructions, whether those instructions are difficult or easy for us. We Christians should be the best, most hardworking employees and students. Notice I did not say the most intelligent or the most gifted or skilled. Those things come from God. But whatever position you are in, you should be the best at that. You should, you should be marked by integrity. People should say, you can trust that person. Your coworkers should say, yeah, I, I, you can trust them. Even the non-Christians should, should say, he keeps his word. She keeps his, her word. She does what she says she's going to do, and she works hard. She's not lazy. She's not, she's not sneaking around and, and playing, playing games on the computer when the boss isn't looking. No, we are to represent Christ in that, in that setting. And it's not enough for Christians to just submit to those that God has put in authority over them. To say, you know what? Okay, fine. God, fine. God, I submit. You, you, you put this boss over me. You put this teacher who doesn't like me over me. Fine, I'll begrudgingly just do what I have to do to get through this season. It's one of those sanctifying seasons where I just kind of hold on and bite my tongue and just, just begrudgingly do what I'm told to do. Paul goes on to give this instruction in verse 22. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. God is always after our hearts, even when we're struggling to obey those who are in authority over us. Meaning it's not enough to outwardly obey. It's, it, your obedience is not to be a show or a trick. You are to actually, sincerely from the heart, be seeking to obey your boss or teacher. I know I just pressed in a little bit harder. At first you're like, okay, I got to obey. And now it's, the Bible is telling me to tell you, no, no, you've got to want to. You've got to, from your heart, obey this is what God calls you to do. Brother or sister in Christ, this means that even if you have a difficult superior, you're not to be complaining about them with your coworkers or classmates. You're not to be talking back to them. You're not to be making comments under your breath about them in order to vent your frustrations. 
I, I, I struggle to find a passage that permits us Christians to vent. It's become this, like, yes, we're to counsel with one another. We're to share our burdens. There's a way to say, you know, this person at work is really difficult. And many of you do this very well, at least when you talk with me. Maybe it's just a show because I'm the pastor. But I, but I get the sense that, that many of you who are doing this are doing it well. You're not throwing them under the bus. You're not saying they're just an evil, wicked person. I hate them. You're doing it in a way that honors the Lord. I'm struggling to obey this boss. They're not a Christian. I think they hate me because I'm a Christian. Or this teacher is really difficult. They're just seemingly adding assignments just to make us do more work. You tend to do this, but you need to be careful, Christian, that you're not just venting. That even when you're talking about an issue that you have with somebody else, like a coworker or a boss or a teacher, that you're honoring them. That if they were there right there, they would say, okay, I disagree, but I can see your point. you're not just demeaning them and treating them as if they're the devil incarnate, all right? We're not allowed to just vent. Christian, brother, sister, under the authority of another, you're not to undermine the authority of somebody else in public or behind their back. You're not to be questioning them in a disrespectful and dishonoring way. You represent Christ to that person. If they're a brother or sister in Christ, and, and maybe you're like, man, are they really following Jesus by the way they treat people? Uh, or they're not a Christian. Either way, you are to represent Christ to that person. But why should you sincerely obey from the heart? Why should you want to do that? Not because you're a people pleaser who wants to get on your boss's or your teacher's good side. And not because you fear a man or a woman, but because you have a healthy fear of the Lord. As the author of Proverbs puts it in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now it's common today for employees to grumble. I think this is that stereotype that's kind of, it's been proven true throughout history. People who are under the authority of somebody else like to grumble and complain about that leader. And then they get into the position of, of leadership maybe down the road. And then the same thing happens in this cycle. We're not to play that game, Christian. That's not how we roll. That's not how we live. That's not our mentality in the workplace or in school. It's common for students to undermine their teachers, to disrespect them. It's getting more and more common. We Christians are to obey those in authority over us, like bosses or teachers, because we fear. We have reverence for and respect for God, who commands us to obey those that he has put over us. And remember, ultimately, in God's sovereignty, the person that is over you is not there by accident. Every single position of authority is ultimately given through the hands of God. And so we need to be thinking, not just what is God teaching me, but what opportunities do I have to glorify God and serve Christ in this situation? This reality of sincere obedience from the heart to a boss or teacher being a demonstration of our submission to Lord Jesus Christ is made clear in verse 23. Because that's what you're doing ultimately. When you submit to those who are over you, that, that God has put over you, you're submitting to Christ. It's proven true in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whether you are a Christian construction worker with a foreman, a doctor with a supervisor, a salesman who reports to a manager, an elementary student with a teacher, or a college student with a professor, if you are a Christian, you are ultimately doing your work, doing your studies for the Lord. And so how should you work or study for the Lord? Wholeheartedly. You don't go in halfway. You don't say, I'm just getting through this season. I'm just going to hold on. Well, this boss goes through their, their, their stuff, and then, then I, I get to move on to another boss. No, you're to work wholeheartedly because the Lord Jesus Christ is your king. 
He is the one who has not only won your salvation, but won your heart. And this means that the work you do in faith under the authority of a boss or, prof- or professor is not just for the benefit of others, whether that be the owner of a company or a teacher, but for the Lord, your Lord Jesus. Christian, if you get this, if you really get this reality, and it's a big, huge reality, and it makes its way down from your head, down to your heart, it's going to change the way you view your work and your studies if you're in school. Too often we make work our identity. But as a Christian, your true identity, no matter what work you do, is that you are a Christian. You are someone who has, by God's sovereign grace through faith in Christ, been redeemed, forgiven, justified, and reconciled to a holy God. That's who you are. No matter what job you are in, no matter what work you do, no matter what field or career you're pursuing, this is the reality. You are a Christian. It's your greatest identity. Christian, one day because either you will expire, meaning you will leave this world, you will die, or because you retire, you will no longer do the work that you currently do, but you will always be a Christian. So if you're an electrician hanging lights, a plumber fixing leaks, or a carpenter framing a wall, you are not just earning a paycheck and putting food on the table. You're using the skills and gifts that God has given you under the authority that he has placed over you to serve your king, Jesus. And the same goes for the garbage man, the mail carrier, the salesperson, the student, the college student. Your hard work is in the end to be done wholeheartedly in faith, not for man, not for woman, not for the company, but for Jesus. If you get this, it's going to change the way you view Monday through Friday or whatever your work schedule is. It's going to change how you view it. And Paul doesn't stop there with this call for Christians to work heartily for the Lord. In the rest of this passage, he provides us with a helpful reminder to those under the authority of others, as well as a warning and instructions to those in a position of authority over others. He writes, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The truths contained in these verses are captured well by the Latin phrase Coram Deo. Now, I first came across this phrase while I was reading the writings of R.C. Sproul, who, who likes to sneak Latin phrases into his books and sermons. If you ever listen to R.C. Sproul, you, every once in a while, you're like, well, why is he speaking in Latin all of a sudden? Then he unpacks, you're like, all right, I like that. And then you start to sneak it into your conversations, and I've just done it in this sermon. Coram Deo. And out of respect and in honor of R.C. Sproul, the late theologian and pastor, I want to give you a definition and understanding of Coram Deo with a quote that's from R.C. Sproul. This phrase, Coram Deo, literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. It involves recognizing that there is no higher goal than offering honor to God. Our lives are to be living sacrifices, oblations offered in a spirit of adoration and gratitude. To live all of life, Coram Deo, is to live a life of integrity. 
It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the majesty of God. Friends, God sees all things. He will reward those who obey him. He will judge the wrongdoer for the wrong they do. And God will show no partiality to the bondservant, to the master, to the employer or the employee, to the teacher or to the student. He's not going to say, well, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit more grace because you are the one under authority, or I'm going to show some favoritism to you because you are the one over and responsible for these other people. All of life, no matter what our job or title is, is in the presence of God before the face of God under God's gaze. And the reality is that, that whether we are under the authority of a boss or a teacher, or we are in authority over an employee or student, Jesus Christ is the authority over all of us. He is our king. He sees what we are doing. He knows the sincerity of our hearts. Whether we are truly working wholeheartedly for, for God because of, of the, the position he's put us in and submitting to his rule over us, or if we're secretly rebelling, grumbling, and scheming against those in positions over us, he knows it. What, what an important reminder this morning in light of Coram Dale. Brother, sister, he sees what's going on in your heart when you interact with your boss or your teacher. Those of us in positions of authority, he knows what's going on in our hearts, what's, what's driving us. Are we being just and are we being fair with those that, that we are responsible and, and have authority over? He knows. We can't trick him. We, we can trick people, but we cannot trick God. He sees it all. And he will judge. He will reward and he will judge. The God who sees all, knows all. He will do this. We who obey those who he has placed in authority over us and treat those under our authority justly and fairly, he's going to reward. Church, the reality is, is that if we don't remember Coram Deo, we will likely functionally live our lives as atheists. That's how we will go Monday through Friday. Here's church, here's worship. Jesus is awesome. Let's glorify him. Let's praise him. Let's sing these rich songs and pray together. Go to Bible study on Wednesday night or community group. And, and, and then Monday through Friday, work, school, there's going to be a separation because we're forgetting that, that God is seeing what we're doing. He, he, he's looking. He's watching. He knows if we're being obedient from the heart or if we're just going through the motions. He knows if we're scheming and we're seeking to undermine the authority that he has put over us. So if we forget Coram Deo, that God sees all, he will reward and he will judge, well, then we will functionally live our lives as atheists. But if we remember the reality of Coram Deo, we will live as Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming Christians who by faith in Christ obey those who God has put over us, even those who are really hard to obey. The boss that is rude and mean, who makes snarky comments, who uses foul language, the, the teacher who seems to just love to give homework and, and it seems to not connect to, to, to what we're working on. Uh, we will, because we know that God sees our hearts and he, he knows what's going on, we will still obey them. We will remember that God sees it. He knows what's going on. And this reality of Coram Dale is going to do this. Free us from people-pleasing. Free us from being afraid of man or woman. And it's going to cause us to treasure Christ and work heartily for the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. It's going to say, it's going to, this truth is going to say to us when we're struggling, this is for Jesus. There are opportunities to glorify God. I treasure Christ. I submit to Jesus. And here in this this relationship, whether I'm the employer or the employee, I have an opportunity to do that. It's going to change the way that you view Monday through Friday and your schooling.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes it's so hard for us to submit. So hard. It's often hard. Speaking from my own heart, it's, I struggle to submit to your ways and your works. And yet, because of your spirit and regeneration, I recognize that your ways are so good and right, even when I'm struggling to submit to them. Whether it's somebody that has an authority over me, whether it's the government, whether it's a, it's a position of authority that has been placed over me, I, I struggle. We struggle as your people. And so we pray that you would help us to see Coram Deo, to remember Coram Deo every day, that that truth, that you see these things, that you will reward, that you will judge, would make its way down deeper into our hearts and so that we would live in that reality. We're interacting with a boss or an employee, a student, a teacher. Help us, Father. We want to glorify you. We don't want to waste these relationships. I pray for the employee this morning that is really, really struggling to honor you in the workplace. Lord, help them. Show them that you are enough, that you have purposes, even in this, this relationship that they have with a, with a boss or, or a supervisor, for, for you to, to be glorified in their lives. I pray for the student who is struggling in school and, and is rebelling against their teacher. Lord, show them their, their folly, their sin, and cause them to want to obey their teacher because they want to glorify you. I pray for those of us who are in positions of authority over others. Help us to be just and fair, seeking to honor you, our King, in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.